Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I have three new movies to review for you. One of them is brand new, having debuted in theaters on May 5th. 2023. The other two are a little older than that. I'm just getting to them right now, but I might as well start with the top one. Not only the newest one, but what will undoubtedly be the biggest film of this week and maybe even this month. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. And this movie is, of course, the third entry in the Guardians of the Galaxy uh, trilogy. It's said to be the last one, but I'm not sure if that's exactly going to happen. It's a sequel to the 2014 film Guardians of the Galaxy, which brought a lot of people who didn't read comic books on a regular basis, especially Marvel comic books, into the Guardians of the Galaxy mythos and definitely did very well with familiarizing people who were not familiar with the comic books with these otherwise very odd characters. The odds were kind of against the first Guardians of the Galaxy to be a viable entry into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and a lot of people expected the movie to fail because how could it compete with Iron Man, Captain America, and all those other well-established superheroes? Well, it did well enough to create Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, which came out in 2017, and of course Guardians of the Galaxy played a very pivotal role in the last two Avengers films, Avenger Infi- uh, excuse me, Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame. And this is the first film in which the Guardians of the Galaxy pe- uh, creatures appear, or I should say team members, appear since Avengers Endgame, and it is the 32nd film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And James Gunn has directed this film, as he's directed the other two Guardians of the Galaxy films. And many, actually all of the original Guardians of the Galaxy members come back to reprise their roles. Chris Pratt returns as Peter Quill, also known as Star-Lord, although he probably knows himself as Star-Lord better than everyone else. Dave Bautista returns as Drax, Bradley Cooper returns to reprise his voice acting role of Rocket. Vin Diesel returns to reprise his voice acting role of Groot. And last but not least, Zoe Saldana reprises her role as Gamora. Also, there was once an adversary of the Guardians of the Galaxy named Nebula, who is Gamora's sister, and she's reprised in this movie by Karen Gillan. And... She is not so much the villain of the Guardians of the Galaxy as she was in the first film, as much as she is a confidant, albeit a reluctant confidant and an anti-hero. But all of them are back, and I should not forget uh, Mantis, who is the clairvoyant creature who's played by Palm Clementiev. And yeah, don't ask me to pronounce that name again, because I probably couldn't. But anyway, they are up to quite a bit in this third movie. First, they establish a colony in the rebuilt Nowhere, which is spelled K-N-O-W-H-E-R-E. And eventually they are attacked by somebody by the name of Adam, who in this movie is played by Will Poulter. And at first you think that Adam is going to be this, uh, the main... um, 
antagonist of the film, but it actually turns out that he is, um, well, at first an antagonist, but eventually he becomes a little bit more of an anti-hero than a straight-out villain. But he is a super-powered being, Adam is, created out of revenge by his mother and the Empress of Sovereign, whose name is Aisha, for previously stealing from her people. And Adam and the other so, so-called children of Aisha are ordered to bring Rocket to the High Evolutionary, who has become obsessed with retrieving him for the purpose of isolating and replicating Rocket's intellect. And this movie actually gives you a lot of backstory behind Rocket. And the High Evolutionary becomes the main villain of the movie, and he's played by Chukwudi Iwiju who is an actor with whom I'm not entirely familiar. And even though he's very over-the-top in a delightful kind of way, kind of like Gaston from Beauty and the Beast, eventually you find reasons to hate him. And you're not looking for reasons to hate him. The High Evolutionary gives you reasons to hate him. So the High Evolutionary is probably one of Marvel's most complex villains since Thanos. And... Say what you will about the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies kind of losing their muster since Avengers Endgame. The villains, including the villain that was previously in the last Ant-Man movie, have been pretty top-notch. And I'm very excited to see these villains in further sequels. The High Evolutionary may appear in a later film, but I'm not counting on it. If I say what happens to the High Evolutionary at the end, I will be spoiling this film for you, and I don't want to spoil it for you. But in any event, you find out the backstory behind Rocket and his connection to the High Evolutionary, as well as how Rocket came to be and how Rocket's becoming both a talking raccoon as well as a no-holds-barred, just absolutely tough raccoon came from the High Evolutionary. And honestly, I did not expect to feel sympathy for a talking raccoon. Because in the first two movies, and maybe even in the Avengers sequels, Rocket is a bit more uh, of comic relief, although more in a straight, no-chaser kind of way. He's tough, and he definitely resents being called a raccoon, even though that's what he is. But the movie actually gives you a really good and very heartfelt backstory to how Rocket came to be. And there's also a tie-in between this movie and the last two Avengers films in the sense of the fate of one of the characters. There's one character or one member of the Guardians of the Galaxy who met their fate at the end of Avengers Infinity War and came through a series of some time travel plot, came back to life. But this character's re-entry into the Guardians of the Galaxy based on that time travel loophole is explained here, but it also creates some more consternation, particularly between Peter Quill, the ipso facto 
ipso facto leader of the Guardians of the Galaxy and this other character whom I won't reveal. Even though it's revealed near the beginning of the film, or at least in the first act, of what happened to this character and why this character is the way this character is, I won't reveal it because it does tie into a very complex story, which I really can't get into exactly. But a lot of people, it's been said on the news, particularly on NPR, are having superhero fatigue. But I would probably say that even though the Guardians of the Galaxy exist in the same cinematic universe as a lot of other superheroes, I wouldn't exactly call them superheroes as much as I would call them maybe sci-fi characters. But people are still going to see these MCU movies, and whether they love them or they hate them, I can't deny that Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 tells a really good story and has all the characters even more fully developed than they were previously. Actually, Drax, the Dave Bautista character, probably has more of the comic relief in this movie than any other character does. And interestingly enough, Groot grows as a character too, Only even though he says three words throughout most of the film, and it's the same three words over and over again. And for those of you who are not familiar with the Guardians of the Galaxy movies or even the MCU movies, I won't reveal what those three words are. But yeah, basically, the the Guardians of the Galaxy allegedly meet their end at, at, at the conclusion of this film. But the movie does have an end credit scene, which is obvious, which is probably not obviously probably one of the most disappointing of the end credit scenes. And it seemed kind of to, to troll audiences, but it did make a promise that at least one of the characters would return. So is this the end of the Guardians of the Galaxy? My guess is probably not. It will be the end the end of the Guardians of the Galaxy if and only if one of these Guardians of the Galaxy movies or one of these movies with Guardians of the Galaxy in it tanks hard. But Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, I thought, had probably the second best story of the three Guardians of the Galaxy movies. I think Volume 2 is probably my favorite of the the three films, but I give Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 my rating of a knockout because I loved how it developed a lot of the characters. I think... I think a lot of the dimensions and planets to which the Guardians of the Galaxy travel are really fascinating, especially one place that looks the equivalent of planet Earth until you actually meet the citizens of this planet that looks somewhat like nonchalant Earth. And Chukwudi Iwuji, the most notable additional member of the Marvel Cinematic Universe that is actually the villain, was delightfully over the top. And I would love to see him in a in a, a future MCU movie. But Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is a movie that, unlike the previous Ant-Man film, does not disappoint. It has a lot of great set design. There are some green screen effects, but none of it feels really cheap. It is quite amazing to watch. And, of course, the story, even though it's a lot more complicated than the other two films, still holds a solid narrative thread. And it's great to see the Guardians of the Galaxy again. I just hope to see them in a future film, despite what the movie promises.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie that I'm going to be reviewing for you is Big George Foreman, or as it's known by its full title, Big George Foreman, The Miraculous Story of the Once and Future Heavyweight Champion of the World. This, of course, is a movie about the life and boxing career of said George Foreman. It's directed by George Tillman Jr., and the real George Foreman actually served as an executive producer of this movie. And George Tillman Jr. has previously directed such films as The Hate You Give, which was an amazing film which came out in 2018. And I think that was a movie that did a great service to the book upon which it was based, and probably as good as that film. He also directed... as good as the book. He also previously directed a, a number of great films, Soul Food, Men of Honor, Notorious, and, well, maybe not a great film, but it, it is a film nonetheless, The Longest Ride, which is based on a book by Nicholas Sparks. So Big George Foreman is bringing the story of George Foreman to the big screen for the first time. And a lot of people remember George Foreman as when he was a heavyweight boxer, and Some other people, like myself, are are probably shocked by how George Foreman was perceived in the media back in the 70s compared to how he is now. He was, I mean, ever since the 1980s, he's been seen as largely a big teddy bear. But uh, when he was an up-and-coming boxer, not only did he win gold at the Olympics in Mexico City in 1968, despite only having boxed for one year professionally, He was also a force to be reckoned with, and he was heavily favored to win against Muhammad Ali in the Rumble in the Jungle, which took place in Zaire in 1974. That was when George Foreman was defending his heavyweight title, but Muhammad Ali gained the heavyweight title and became the first boxer in boxing history to gain the heavyweight title for the second time. It wouldn't be the last time for Muhammad Ali, and also George Foreman would regain the heavyweight title much, much later in his life when, at his age back then, the odds were definitely against him. But this movie starts from the beginning where it shows the young George Foreman in the rough part of Houston, Texas, where his family is so poor that his single mother has to take one cheeseburger and divide it amongst her four children. That's a really hard upbringing to even imagine, but George Foreman apparently suffered through that. Where his father was in the picture, I don't exactly know, but you could probably look it up. But eventually, George Foreman grows up and joins a program called the Job Corps, which is his way of getting out of his rough part of Houston, Texas, and making a name for himself by learning some sort of life skills. And the older George Foreman, or at least the one in his late teens, as well as the George Foreman we see in his early 40s, is played throughout the film by Chris Davis. And George Foreman eventually befriends one of the people who runs this Job Corps program by the name of Doc Brodus, and he's played by Forrest Whitaker. And Doc Brodus eventually coaches George Foreman into becoming a boxer and does very well. And even though Doc Brodus in 1967 tried to talk George Foreman out of competing in the Olympics in Mexico City in 1968, George Foreman does anyway. And not only does he thrive in the Olympics, he also wins gold for boxing. And 
Eventually, he becomes the heavyweight boxing champion of the world, and a lot of his ups and downs as a boxer are detailed here. And what I didn't realize was that George Foreman was undefeated. Not only was he undefeated, but he also won 40 straight matches before fighting Muhammad Ali in Zaire in the Rumble in the Jungle, which is a fight that was brought to the big screen in 1996 for the Academy Award-winning documentary When We Were Kings, which was an amazing documentary that is not only out right now, it's also out on the Criterion Collection, where you can probably get it on Blu-ray and maybe even 4K, but most definitely Blu-ray, and it is well worth the watch regardless of what format on which you watch it. But the one weakness of this film was the person who played Muhammad Ali, whose, whose name is Sullivan Jones. Unlike other people who have portrayed Muhammad Ali, like Will Smith, Darius McCrary, and even Billy Crystal, Sullivan Jones, to me, did not convince me that he was Muhammad Ali, probably because of the way he looked, because Sullivan Jones looks less like Muhammad Ali and more like Al Giroux. So whenever I looked at Sullivan Jones and saw him emulating Muhammad Ali, I thought less smoke, uh, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, and more we're in this love together. But lo and behold, Sullivan Jones, I think, does a decent job portraying Muhammad Ali, but they could have gotten somebody better. But the reenactment of the Rumble in the Jungle here, I thought, was one of the best parts of the film. It doesn't really hold a candle to When We Were Kings, but When We Were Kings used a plethora of archive footage, whereas this film is reenacting a very famous fight. So I'm not going to fault it for that. But I do have to say that Chris Davis, even though he doesn't look a lot like George Foreman, at least not in his older years, I think does a good job portraying George Foreman in his younger self when he was the heavyweight champion of the world and also when he's older and a bit more like the teddy bear that I just mentioned as he's selling grills and and things to that nature. But I know that eventually in the 80s and early 90s, George Foreman gained quite a bit of weight uh, and Chris Davis actually does a really good job portraying George Foreman in his in his less than prime, but also it makes you root for him all the more when George Foreman makes an unlikely return to the boxing ring at his age, which he was at first retired from boxing as this movie demonstrates. He found Jesus and became a preacher and he also became a leader in his Houston, Texas community by opening up his own church as well as his own fitness center for the youth. But when he's facing bankruptcy, he realizes that he has to supplement his role as a community member as well as provide for his family by doing something. And he makes a reluctant return to the ring that ultimately ends up being a triumphant return to the ring. Now, this movie doesn't demonstrate all the career trajectories that George Foreman took. For example, this movie takes place up to 1994 when he makes the unlikely return to regain his heavyweight title, but it doesn't mention a sitcom in which he acted in 1993 alongside Cheryl Lee Ralph, and that's probably a good thing because that sitcom, even though it was well-intentioned, was pretty bad, and largely because George Foreman is a larger-than-life personality, but I he definitely didn't have the acting chops to hold up a long-running sitcom, but 
The movie doesn't mention that. I, I thought it was pretty good. It definitely does make some ventures into faith-based film territory, but I don't think it was meant to be a faith-based film. And I think probably the the parts of this film where it, it becomes a bit more faith-based stands out a little bit and not in a good way, but I did really enjoy Chris Davis's performance as George Foreman. I thought he worked very well alongside his first wife played by Sonia Sohn and his second wife played by Jasmine Matthews. And the scenes between him and Forrest Whitaker were golden, which is why I give big George Foreman and I'm not going to say the whole title of the movie, my rating of a checkout. I do think it is a serviceable biopic, and Chris Davis does a great job portraying George Foreman, but it's not the best boxing movie that I've seen, and it may have been part of the the faith-based inception here that prevented it from being just as good as Creed Three, which, ironically enough, detailed a fictional boxing match as opposed to this movie, which is inspired by actual events, probably even more to based on a true story. But I did enjoy it for what it was. I think it's a great acting debut or at least a breakthrough acting performance by Chris Davis. And there are things that are worth seeing in this film. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Showing Up. This is a film that is directed by Kelly Reichert, who is known for directing relatively slow films. She's directed a lot of dramas recently, or rather throughout her career. And the most recent film that I've seen that's directed by Kelly Reichert is a film that came out back in 2016, and it's a film called Certain Women. And it was more of an anthology film because it told three different stories within the same cinematic universe. I thought one of those stories worked really well. The other two, I didn't quite get into, but she's also directed other films like Meek's Cutoff, Night Moves, and First Cow. First Cow was a film that came out in 2019, and even though I was hosting Words on Film back in 2019, I actually missed this one. It might have come out later in 2019 when my show was on hiatus trying to find a radio station out of which to broadcast in Tennessee. But anyway, showing up is the latest from director Kelly Reichert, who co-wrote the screenplay along with Jonathan Raymond. And it takes place and is was filmed on location in Portland, Oregon. And Portland, Oregon nowadays has a reputation, a good reputation, for being an artsy town. And this film adds to that reputation, I think, uh, pretty realistically and also very affectionately. The movie is about a sculptor who is living in Portland, Oregon, whose name is Lizzie, and she's played by Michelle Williams. And Lizzie lives in a community of artists where even her landlord, who is played by Hung Chow, is an artist who is also opening up her own exhibit. And Lizzie is preparing to open up her exhibit of sculpted people. 
And she's preparing to open this new show and tries to work amidst the daily drama of family and friends. So being an artist, she doesn't live lavishly. And of course, doing the avant-garde sculpting that she does, she definitely invests both financially and also creatively in artists that in art that a lot of other people are not apt to understand, but she fits in very well in this Portland, Oregon arts community. As a matter of fact, she has a father who's played by Judd Hirsch, who is an artist himself, albeit a little bit more of a more commercially acceptable artist than Lizzie is. But one of Lizzie's struggles throughout this movie is having hot water with which to bathe in her apartment. She can afford the rent, but her landlord, Joe Hong Chow's character is struggling to get the hot water operating again. This is a recurring theme throughout this film. And there are also some other artists and confidants in this film as well. There's Another artist by the name of Eric, who's played by Andre Benjamin, also known as Andre 3000. In this film, he's known by his real name, Andre Benjamin. And I was kind of surprised because Andre Benjamin doesn't play a huge role in this film. And you would think that a pop star like Andre Benjamin would have a bigger role in this. But it's actually kind of refreshing that he doesn't. But he does play a friend of Michelle Williams here. And the movie is a little less of a traditional narrative and more of a slice-of-life film. But for anybody who's been in an art studio and who has met with people who make a living out of both making art and showcasing it for the masses, it feels very real. I know I, I recognize some people from some of the internships and some of the the internships I've done and some of the places that I've visited and in, including art exhibits. This is a film that's very true to life. And it's also very impressive that it not only has three Academy Award nominees in its cast, it also has three Academy Award nominees who were nominated for Oscars this past Oscar season, Michelle Williams, Hong Chow, and Judd Hirsch. And it's, it was probably serendipity for the film showing up because this film is technically a 2022 film, not a 2023 film. It premiered at the Cannes Film Festival last year and was one of the finalists for the Palme d'Or Award, but the movie Triangle of Sadness ended up winning instead. But showing up premiered in theaters nationwide, or at least in limited release on April 7th, 2023 by the thriving independent studio, a 24. I'm glad I saw it, but it's a film that I don't think will appeal to everyone. It's certainly very typical of Kelly Reichert. It is a very slow moving film and it doesn't have a blatant narrative, but I do think it's a very smart film. And it's also one that is certainly true to the the art world as a profession and as a life. And it's a film that actually makes me want to at least visit Portland, Oregon once in my life, maybe not live there, but at least visit there because it certainly earned that reputation as 
a thriving artistic community. So showing up is a film that is not for the masses, but showing up gets my rating of a knockout because it's very well acted and it also has some very funny moments in it as well. I really loved Hung Chow in, in this film uh, in particular because she plays someone who is both simple, not just empathetic to the artistic community, but she's also sympathetic because she's an artist herself, but she also has her limitations in terms of how much she can afford to fix as a landlord, having other responsibilities outside of the artistic world. But you know, without this landlord position, she would probably be struggling like the stereotypical artist would do. And I also felt for Michelle Williams character, Lizzie, because you know, she's, creating something that's true to her heart, but the, the way a lot of other Hollywood films about artists go, either they're working their way up to something really big or they're working up to something that could potentially be destroyed. None of, without giving too much away, none of those scenarios happen in this film, and I actually think it's great that the movie went for that realistic twist. So Showing Up is a film that will probably not have a lot of audience members showing up, but I think it's a film that is a good slow burner and anybody who is part of any artistic community in any community in the world, let alone in the United States, will certainly love this film. It has a lot of appreciation for art, but it also delves into a lot of the realism of what modern artists have to live with on a daily basis. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my final segment, which which actually is the first uh, part of this segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters and or streaming for the week of... May 8th through May 12th, 2023. And there are some big movies to come out this week, probably not as big as Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, because I think that's going to be number one at the box office for quite some time. But there's still going to be a number of noteworthy movies that will be uh, opening in theaters. For example, on May 9th, which is a Tuesday, there are two films that are subject to being released in theaters, but will most likely be released near you on streaming. The first one is a documentary that's called Chop and Steel, and the latter name, Steel, is spelled S-T-E-E-L-E. So it's a movie that's a documentary about childhood friends Nick Pruner and Joe Pickett, 
who start booking their gag strongman routine on unsuspecting morning news shows, and their prank ends up going viral, landing them in federal court with a vengeful media conglomerate. Now remember, this is not a fictional film. This is a true story. This is a documentary. So this sounds absolutely awesome. The distributor of this film is Drafthouse Films, which is not as big a distributor of independent films as A24 is. But my guess is with movies like this, which are true but funny, they might actually make a name for themselves. I am very curious to see this film. I don't know if I will, but if I do, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. The other movie that is subject to being released in theaters on May 9th, 2023, which is a Tuesday, is a movie that's called Dealing with Dad. And this movie is directed by and written by Tom Huang. And it's about a woman by the name of Margaret who reluctantly goes back to her hometown with her brothers to deal with the sudden depression of her of their dad. This movie is not a comedy. This is a straight-out drama. And the movie looks like it is American. And the stars of the movie include Ali Mackey, with whom I'm not entirely familiar, uh, Hayden Stetso, Sesto, excuse me, Peter Kim, and Dana Lee, amongst other people. But other than those four actors, I don't really know anyone else in this movie, but it's a film that I am very intrigued to see. I hope it's coming out at least on streaming. And if it does, if I do see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And May 12th, 2023 is the day that a lot of bigger films are almost definitely coming to theaters, particularly the first three films that I'm going to mention for you right now. There's a big action film that's taking a risk coming out the weekend after Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, but this film is called Knights of the Zodiac. And Knights of the Zodiac is both action as well as uh, fantasy and drama, and it's about a goddess of war who reincarnates in the body of a young girl, street orphan Saya, and then discovers that he is destined to protect her and save the world, but only if he can face his own past and become a knight of the Zodiac. So I'm relatively unfamiliar with what kind of mythology they're incorporating in this film, but the movie is directed by Tomasz Baginski and stars Famke Janssen, not my favorite actress, but she's been in a number of um, noteworthy films. Madison Iseman, Alman Keto, excuse me, Sean Bean, who plays the character of Alman Keto, Mark Dacascos, and Nick Stahl. So some familiar names here and there. Uh, as I said, it's a movie that looks like it's very high in budget, as well as th- that they use this budget to create a lot of great special effects from the clips I can see. But I don't know if I'm going to see this film, but if I do see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. The next movie that's going to be subject to being released in theaters on May 12th, 2023, is a movie that's called Book Club, The Next Chapter. This is the sequel to the film Book Club, which came out in 2018. And like the first film, Book Club, The Next Chapter, stars Jane Fonda, Mary Steenburgen, Diane Keaton, and Candace Bergen, all four of whom have surprisingly illustrious acting careers right now, despite their ages and, let's face it, the way that 
Hollywood generally treats women who are over 30. But Jane Fonda has certainly gone up against the odds. And it's very impressive, actually, that Jane Fonda is not only acting as much as she is right now, but she's been in not one, not two, but including this film, three movies that have come out this year. And we're not even halfway through the year. So she was in 80 for Brady, which I loved being a New England Patriots fan. She was also in the movie Moving On, which, like 80 for Brady, surprisingly, also co-starred Lily Tomlin, who is not only Jane Fonda's co-star in 9 to 5, she was also her co-star in the TV series, the beloved Netflix TV series, Grace and Frankie, which just ended their run after seven years. So good for Jane Fonda for still hanging in there, but also these other three actresses, Mary Steenburgen, Candace Bergen, and Diane Keaton for still keeping up with the times and making films that are true to them. But in this film, Book Club, The Next Chapter, it follows the new journey of these four best friends as they take their book club to Italy for the fun girls trip they never had. Now, I reviewed the original book club when it came out in 2018 and there was one part of the film that I absolutely hated. And that part, it was actually a line. It was when they were they decided as a book club they were going to read 50 shades of gray. And I don't have a problem with that because if that's your thing, it's a free country, you can go ahead and read that. But I really really hated it. And I don't blame Jane Fonda for this. I blame the script writers when they made Jane Fonda say 50 million people can't be wrong. Now, I know that however many million people can be wrong, not about 50 shades of gray, because obviously that touched a nerve with a lot of people, which is why a lot of people read it and it became a bestseller. I absolutely hated the movies, but I haven't read the books, but you know, Anyone can read it if they want to. But politically, there have been a certain number of million people, particularly those who voted in 2020, who voted for the wrong person. And it was more than 50 million people. Fortunately, more than that voted for the right candidate to win. But again, I'm getting a little too political here. I I don't think that line will show up in this film. And I expected probably to like it maybe even better than the original book club. But then again, movies where the protagonists go on vacation sometimes have the tendency to be low on plot. But I'm going to give this movie a chance. And when I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. The other movie that I will detail that is subject to being released in theaters on May 12, 2023, is a movie that's called Fool's Paradise. And this is a comedy which stars Adrian Brody and what looks like an all-star cast of characters. Actually, the person who's on the poster of the film, who's front and center, literally, is Charlie Day, who not only acts in the film, but he also directed the film and wrote the story and the screenplay. So this movie, the the description that this film, that this site gives me about this film is that Fool's Paradise is about a fool for love who becomes an accidental celebrity only to lose it all. So this movie has an all-star cast. Not only does Charlie Day and 
Adrian Brody star in it, but also Kate Beckinsale is in it. And given how good Kate Beckinsale looks as she's pushing 50, my assumption is that Kate Beckinsale will be the one for whom Charlie Day's character falls only to become the fool. Or at least that's what I'm guessing. But also co-starring in this film is Jason Sudeikis and Jason Bateman, both of whom co-starred with Charlie Day in the Horrible Bosses film. Ray Liotta actually co-stars in this film, and I don't know if it's this film or if it was Cocaine Bear that is Ray Liotta's final film, but it's good to see him appear in this film posthumously. Also, Jillian Bell, John Malkovich, Dean Norris, Ken Jeong, and Edie Falco, amongst other people, appear in this film as well. Considering they're lower on the credits, they probably don't have huge appearances in this film, but I really hope to see this film, not only because I think Charlie Day is hilarious, both in films and on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, but I would love to see how he does as a director and as a screenwriter. My guess is this is a passion project for Charlie Day, and if this is a film that I will see, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, and I've given you a number of the films that are subject to being released in theaters on May 9th and May 12th, 2023, but there are several other films that might be coming out in the theater near you, but are most likely to be released on streaming, and I'll get through those as quickly as I can, even though the site I'm looking at tells me that these films are going to be released in theaters. They probably are not going to be released in theaters near you, but it's likely that they'll be released maybe on streaming and maybe in an art house theater near you if you're lucky, depending. But the next movie that I will be telling you about that's subject to being released in theaters on May 12th, 2023, is a movie that's called Blackberry. Now, Blackberry is both a comedy and drama as well as a biography. And this is the story of the meteoric rise and catastrophic demise of the world's first smartphone. This is really interesting because BlackBerry was, I think, the prominent smartphone. It might not have been the only smartphone, but it definitely was the most used until Apple came out with iPhone. And since then, BlackBerry was left in the dust. But it's a typical rise and fall movie about businesses. The cast of this movie is pretty impressive. Jay Baruchel stars in this film as Mike Lazaridis. We haven't heard about him in a, a while. Glenn Howerton also stars in this movie, as well as Matt Johnson and Carrie Elways, amongst other people. This is a film that looks interesting. I don't know if I'm going to see this film, but if I do, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that is subject to be released in theaters on May 12th, 2023, is The Starling Girl. This is a drama that doesn't star anyone of which I know right off the top of my head. This is a film about a girl by the name of Jem Starling who is 17 years old and struggles with her place within her Christian fundamentalist community. But everything changes when her magnetic youth pastor, Owen, returns to their church. 
The movie is directed by and written by Laurel Parme and stars Eliza Scanlon, Lewis Pullman, Jimmy Simpson, and Ren Schmidt. None of whom I recognize, but if this is a film that I see, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. This movie is probably likely to be released on streaming and maybe a little bit less likely on, uh, on a, in a theater near you. This is, oh, actually confirmed with that. This is a film that's going to be premiering on Apple TV+. And this film is called Still, a Michael J. Fox movie. It's a documentary that follows the life of the beloved actor and advocate Michael J. Fox, exploring his personal and professional triumphs and travails, and what happens when an incurable optimist confronts an incurable disease. The reason that I would love to see this film, even though I don't subscribe to Apple TV+, Plus, is because I saw a story on Michael J. Fox last week on CBS Sunday Morning, and he was being interviewed by Jane Pauley. And even though I'm on board with Michael J. Fox, I've loved Michael J. Fox ever since Family Ties, which even when I was a little kid, that was one of the only primetime sitcoms my family and I watched, that and The Cosby Show and Cheers. So Michael J. Fox is a good person who has had something really bad happen to him. And the effects of Parkinson's disease have really taken his toll, have really taken their toll. And it is a, a real shame because he deserves better. But at the same time, I absolutely applaud him and not only admire him for his optimism as well as his bravery in coming forth and making people more aware of the real effects of Parkinson's. And I am very curious to see this film. I don't exactly know if I'm going to see it because I don't have Apple TV Plus, but I will do my best and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. The director of this film, by the way, is Davis Guggenheim, who has had extensive documentary experience. So this is a film I'll seek out. I hope it plays in a theater near me. I hope I don't have to subscribe to Apple TV Plus to see it, but... This would be one of those films which is worth seeing on Apple TV+, Plus, at least in my opinion. I know I, I shouldn't judge a film just by its premise, which I try not to do, but documentaries give you a general idea of how good they're going to be. But then again, I've seen some bad documentaries too, but I'm going to give still a Michael J. Fox movie a chance, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show if I do in fact see it. And also, subject to being released in theaters on May 12th, 2023 is a film that's called the five devils. This film looks like a foreign film and it's made its way along the festival circuit. And it's about a woman by the name of Vicky who lives with her, her mother, Joanne and father, Jimmy, the latter of whom is a man struggling to find his place. When Vicky's aunt Julia arrives after being released from prison, her presence brings back the past in a violent magical way. So the movie is classified as a drama, a fantasy, and a romance. And this movie actually did premiere at last year's Cannes Film Festival, which is a festival, by the way, I hope to go to at least once in my lifetime. They do allow professional critics to go there, but you really have to jump through a lot of hoops to prove that you're a professional critic. 
So I haven't quite gotten there yet. And I really don't have the time to see a ton of, or all the movies that I want to, let alone go to film festivals, uh, including those in the United States. But The Five Devils is a movie that I will seek out, and I'll let you know what I think if I see it on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on May 12, 2023, is a movie that's called Rally Road Racers. And this is a movie that is animated, and has a lot of anthropomorphic animals in it, and it's where racers compete in a high-stakes rally along the famous Silk Road trade route. The vocal stars of this film include Chloe Bennett, J.K. Simmons, John Cleese, Jimmy O. Yang, and Sharon Horgan, amongst other people. So it's got a good voice cast. I don't know if I'm going to see this film, but they say it's only in theaters, so I'll look out for it, and if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And the final movie that is subject to being released in theaters on May 12, 2023, is a movie that's called Wild Beauty, Mustang Spirit of the West. And this is a documentary that is, according to its tagline, a sweeping, immersive journey into the world of wild horses that illuminate both the profound beauty and disparate plight that they currently face in the western United States. I, I misspoke there. I meant to say desperate, not disparate. Those are two separate words. But maybe it is disparate as well, in addition to being desperate. But filmmaker Ashley Avis and crew go on a multi-year expedition to uncover the truth before, and this is where it gets grim, wild horses disappear forever. Yeah, four words left in that plot synopsis, and (laughs) the whole room goes black. But this is a movie that looks to be definitely a timely documentary, as is the, the still documentary with Michael J. Fox, which I'm probably more likely going to see than this film, Wild Beauty. But if I see Wild Beauty, Mustang Spirit of the West, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. I will say, though, that I am curious to find out what kind of danger these wild horses are experiencing and why anyone, how they would become extinct or why they would become extinct. Because I don't think that there's anybody in this world who would ever shoot a wild horse for profit. But maybe it's less the intentional killing of the wild horses as much as it is taking the wild horses in and taming them. But who knows? Uh, But then again, I I have heard stories and I've seen in movies people who trap wild horses and literally make them into dog food. But the one movie where I saw that happen was the film The Misfits, which came out in 1962. Has a lot changed in 61 years? I don't exactly know, but maybe this movie, if I see it, will tell me. But as I always say, if I see it, and it's a big if, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke. And until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.